Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on October 2, 2019. I'm Steve Mursky. The United Nations here in New York City last week hosted the UN Climate Action Summit. Scientific American senior editor Jen Schwartz was on site. She moderated a panel on climate and health and did an interview on transitioning to clean energy. Each audio segment is about 11 minutes long. First up is the Climate and Health panel. Schwartz spoke with Dr. Maria Niera from Spain and Dr. Agnes Sukat from France. Niera is the director of the Department of Public Health, Environment, and Social Determinants of Health for the World Health Organization. Sukat is the director of the Department of Health Systems Governing and Financing of the WHO. So this is going to be climate change and its impact on our health. And we have Maria Nerea and Agni Sukat um, here with us from the World Health Organization. And this topic is so important to us at Scientific American. We cover it a lot, especially because there's so much we don't know in many ways. And we're still studying about how climate change has an impact on our health. So I wanted to start and jump right in with um, the Global Health Agreement uh, that has been adopted here and what this means in the broader context. Okay, there is a climate summit going on inside. And uh, one of the big pillars of that summit is about the, the health commitments. We managed to have a coalition looking at the social and political uh, drivers of this climate summit and is focusing on health. We have two commitments that we are asking the countries to make. Since the uh, Secretary General told us we don't want the speeches, we want commitments, WHO has proposed only two commitments. I think they are very ambitious and very powerful. And if we reach them, our health will benefit enormously. The first one is about reaching standards on, in terms of air quality that will be following the recommendations of the World Health Organization. Imagine that the number of people we have today suffering from air pollution, the number of deaths, we have more than 7 million premature deaths occurring every year due to exposure to air pollution, plus obviously all the, the, the health conditions that people are suffering for a long term. Imagine that the countries inside, they say, okay, I commit to reach WHO standards on air quality. That means that you need to put in place a series of, of uh, interventions to reach that. Those interventions are tackling the causes of climate change, they will reduce air pollution, and they will have a very positive impact on health. So we are convinced that this very powerful argument of using our health or using the fact that it's about our lungs, about the cost in our hospitals and in our health, we hope that this will be a, a strong motivation for, for the leaders to do much more and to put more emphasis. The second commitment is very simple as well, increase the financial support that you are providing for climate change at the healthcare facilities, for having healthcare facilities that are resilient to climate change. At the moment, those healthcare facilities are already affected by climate change and receiving more cases, cases of vector-borne diseases that are increasing with uh, the global warming. But those healthcare facilities are not resilient. They are not prepared. And we are receiving, the health sector is receiving only 0.5% of all the big funds that are announced. So we want countries to commit to increase that support to the climate change and health and the healthcare facilities. 
So I wanted to make a really strong connection for everyone um, about how climate change has an impact on health. And I think people might be aware of things like asthma or malnutrition or the fact that um, diseases from mosquitoes or, and ticks are on the rise and spreading. But could you talk a bit about how pervasive this is and how it touches so many aspects of our health? We have more than enough evidence at the moment demonstrating that climate change is having an impact on our health. Direct impact, because any time that there is a natural disaster, a hurricane, a flooding, or a, or a, or a drought, obviously our health will be suffering. Uh, it's affecting our health because it's putting uh, very favorable conditions for these lovely mosquitoes or other vectors that are uh, transmitting diseases like malaria or dengue. So we know that there is a huge increase in the proportion of population, particularly in Africa, in, in Asia, that is exposed to the possibility of development. Uh, Dengue, for instance. So apart from that, obviously the pillars of our health, access to safe water and nutrition, I mean, producing food if you have a, uh, no agricultural production because it's inundated or, or you have to migrate because there has been a phenomenon like that, it's all very clear. But what we are doing now very strongly is to say, okay, the sources of uh, climate, the global warming and the sources of air pollution are almost the same. I mean, on, the, on a 70% of the cases are the same. Means burning fossil fuels. And therefore, if you stop burning fossil fuels, or if you ensure a healthy energy transition, then you will mitigate the causes of climate change, you will reduce air pollution, and therefore you will contribute to reduce those 7 million deaths that you have every year. So don't tell me that this is not enough uh, powerful to start to raise the level of ambition. If you don't do it because uh, you don't want to talk about climate change, doing it for the 7 million that are occurring every year, and for which we have tons of uh, scientific evidence. How prepared are we right now to deal with things like emerging diseases and the way that disease is spreading in different ways because of climate change? Well, we're certainly not prepared enough. Um, we have Today we have the Climate Change Summit, but we also have the Universal Health Coverage High-Level Meeting. And in that meeting, we know that countries have committed to reach universal health coverage by 2030. And in a way, it, it looks that it is within reach because the world has made extraordinary progress on health and access to health services over the past decades. We know that uh, uh, we have had uh, a major increase in access of health services over the past uh, 15 years between 2000 uh, and, and, uh, and 2017. Uh, access to health services has increased, child mortality has declined, a lot of infectious disease, the, the, uh, the mortality linked to infectious disease has declined, uh, and we know that poverty has declined. So it looks all wonderful, right? We are making progress, uh, the world is getting richer, people are getting healthier, they live longer, and we could see that we're sailing towards success. And then suddenly you say, well, but at the same time, there are new challenges that are emerging that are really threatening this progress and may actually, what we see, we can see that in fact the, the progress on access to health is slowing down. And we see these new threats emerging and climate change is one, but is general environmental degradation also that uh, is linked to pollution and, and human activities. 
It's the food system we have, which also interacts with climate change in the way we produce food uh, through um, processed food and through industrial systems. And, uh, and it is the link of climate change with the pandemic risks. Uh, with the, the risk of animal health, with the, we know that, uh, for example, the Ebola epidemics have very strong environmental factors. We know that there may be resurgence of uh, disease like malaria, and we know that we may have uh, a pandemic of influenza coming. So all these new threats lead us to have, lead us to, have to think differently about universal health coverage in the sense that it's not only about expansion of individual services, I have a disease, I need to address my disease, but it's about how collectively we finance health and how we, through collective action, we, we invest in the commons. It's how we invest in the public goods, how do we invest in, in, in what only governments can do, how we use the collective purse, how do we use taxation, and that climate change makes it even more important that it's not about fighting for individual access to the services that I need for myself. Is we need to fight collectively for those public health services, for those common goods for health that we really need to finance in order to address this risk. So in a way that changes a lot because then the first step for universal health coverage is investing in these public goods. It's investing in these commons, in this common good for health. And that carves a pathway towards universal health coverage, which is quite different. Mm -hmm. it's, it's first do the commons. First do what we all need. And that is automatically equitable because it is for everybody. So it actually benefits the poor first because we also know that the poor are often the most likely to suffer from, from the, the effect of climate change. So universal health coverage also really highlights to me the importance of building out and strengthening and maintaining um, healthcare infrastructure at the community level. Um, can you explain why it's so important to invest in that, especially um, as we have more and more of the effects of climate change? Well, what we see in, in, in a way, the, the uh, Ebola epidemic in West Africa, in the three West African countries that were affected in 2014, has been a wake-up call to realize that there are new threats. And if you don't have health systems, if you don't have uh, a health infrastructure that can uh, identify those threats first and then respond, and then also build the trust of communities so that actually people, when there is a, a, a health problem, will actually seek help rather than fight against a potential solution. Then we realize how important it is to have that network of health services that are trusted. Because when something happens otherwise, then we find quite helpless. In, in the case of Ebola in, these, uh, in uh, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and, and Liberia in 2014, money was not the issue. Very quickly there was money, but there were no health workers. There was no water and electricity in clinics. And still to the day of today, these countries often don't have water and electricity in clinics. And that's why we think having this, these networks of, of community health services is what builds trust, but is also what builds the capacity to diagnose and respond to the, to the health threats. If I may, on the investment, part of the things that we need to do in meetings like the one we are having today is to influence the way others will be investing. Uh, the case of ministers of energy 
it will depend so much which type of uh, which sources of energy they will be investing on it because that will be having an incredible impact on the health of the people. So if we manage to influence those investments moving more into the renewable, this is something that somehow we are saving on the investment for the health sector because we are avoiding all of those diseases to occur as well. So it's the primary prevention and then the, the investments that needs to be done to reinforce the capacity of the, the health system that at the moment is not well equipped, but at the same time, preventing those cases to occur, to avoid further investments and in, 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 in expenditure that uh, we could influence in other sectors. Next on to clean energy, Jen Schwartz interviewed Rachel Kite. We are with Rachel Kite, who is the CEO of Sustainable Energy for All, and also uh, the special representative to the Secretary General on energy. Um, so affordable and clean energy, you are here leading work on what a future energy transition looks like. Um, what does a sustainable energy transition mean, particularly in the context of the urgency that we're working with? Well, hi, thanks for having me here. Um, so, uh, we're talking, I mean, in, in sort of in layperson's terms, right, we're talking about building an economy that by 2050 can operate with no carbon in it, right? We're decarbonizing the economy. And there's carbon in everything, right? So it's the emissions from that which are so damaging. And at the heart of that economy is the energy system, how we generate energy, how we move energy from one place to another, and then what we do with that energy. So your car, um, the, um, the, the, the energy that you use for cooking, for lighting, for all of the things that you're used to. So the way to think about the future is that there will not be like one system. At the moment you have like a central, in most countries, you have a centralized power station, often running on fossil fuels, and that sends energy through transmission lines and then it comes down into your house or to your business. If you live in a very rural or remote area, maybe the energy doesn't get to you. If, you live in a, if you're very poor and you're living on the edge of a city, maybe you're living underneath the power lines and you can't uh, get energy. Maybe you can't afford energy, right? So it's a centralized system. But in the future, systems are going to be decentralized because we're going to be able to use much more renewable energy um, we're going to have a lot more digitalization in the energy system. So we'll have very smart appliances that just use enough energy and you can toggle backwards and forwards as energy supply comes or, or strong or not. And in fact, what we're doing is, de is de we're democratizing energy because your car is going to generate energy that you can use in your house. Your house is going to generate energy. It's going to be a passive building. You're going to see energy when you cycle down a solar road. Right? These innovations are already coming to the economy. So it's important to know that, that those systems are possible to build. But today, we're in a very centralized, fossil fuel-oriented energy system. And so getting there is something that we have to do much quicker and we have to do more deeply, more quickly because of the science and because of the threat and the urgency of climate change. The types of systems you're talking about, um, you can imagine if you're building a city from scratch, the way that you could put that infrastructure together. Yeah. But what are the challenges when, you know, we're in New York, how do you um, retrofit a system even if everyone is on board? 
So, you, so excellent point. You've got to you've got to retrofit buildings and not you know not make them a little bit more energy efficient. You're going to have to retrofit sort of buildings so that they're eighty percent more efficient than they are now. So that's building materials. That's the way you heat and cool buildings. And you've got lots of innovation in New York City, actually. I mean, even just painting the roof of a house white so that you reflect back up into the, the atmosphere, the heat, so you don't need as much air conditioning because the heat isn't sucked in through a black roof into the house. So there's, there's little things to do, and then there's big things to do. Uh, I think what you're also seeing is the need for us to work out how transportation and energy work together. So in cities, if we can move people around on hyper-efficient public transport or using bicycles and other forms of transport, what we call multimodal means of transport, doesn't mean you have to sacrifice any degree of mobility, but we're going to be able to move you around more cleanly within a city. So it, there's a lot of design and planning that goes into this transition. So I want to switch now to effects of climate change that we're already experiencing. Yep. Um, so the past five years have globally have been the hottest on record. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of what we're facing already and in the near future getting worse is the fact that people need to be cooled and our daily lives need to be cooled. And that means using more cooling. Mm -hmm. um, how do we do that in a sustainable way? So this is a really important point. We're getting, the world is getting warmer, and the cities in particular are getting warmer, and there's more and more cities, and in, in particular cities in Asia and Africa. So you're going to have more people living in urban areas uh, where there was something called a heat island effect, which is all of that concrete, and the way we, the way we used to design cities means that you trap even more energy. So we're getting warmer, and then we've got really hot cities, and so the temperatures are going up like this. What this means is that we have a real risk to people, so we have to be cool. We're not very productive economically above a certain temperature. People you know, don't function very well. But also it's a risk to life. But it's also a risk to, say, food if it can't be kept cool, and it's a risk to medicines and vaccines if they can't be kept cool. So we need to have hyper-efficient air conditioning, air conditioning units, uh, can be very inefficient. And then if everybody has to have one or more people have to have them than have them today, then that's going to be much more energy demand. So we have to have super-efficient, hyper-efficient cooling, but we also have to design buildings in a way that they are naturally cooler and can naturally keep temperatures uh, uh, at a, a more st stable level. So it's about design, it's about building materials, and then it's about air conditioning. That air conditioning has to be hyper-efficient. And there are competitions going on right now for teams of scientists around the world to design that cooling for you. Mm -hmm. What about, um, you know, in some of the sectors that are huge contributors, of course, to the fossil fuel issue? I'm wondering if there have been any updates um, from the last couple of days in any sectors that sound especially promising to you. So we've, um, you know, we've seen a number of different partnerships coming forward or new partnerships coming forward. And it's really important because, as you said, they're focusing on pieces of the energy transition which were falling behind or which hadn't had enough attention. So one that I'm very uh, excited about is a new coalition that was announced today uh, on uh, zero emissions vessels. So this is ocean-going cargo. And it, what's interesting about this partnership, this coalition, is that it's made up of the entire value chain of shipping. So you've got the people who build the boats, 
the people who operate ships, the people who operate the ships, the people who fuel the ships, the fuel companies, the ports, which are basically the fuel stations for the ships, and eventually the companies that have their goods shipped. So when you've got the whole value chain, then everybody understands how they can change the industry. So something quite exciting, and I would hope by next year you'll be able to see some results and more people joining. So you work um, with sustainable energy for all. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to touch on that point because, of course, to meet the Paris Agreement goals, we need to stop using coal. And yet coal is still used in many parts of the world where there are gaps in access to energy at all, let alone clean energy. Um, in, in the near term and in the urgency, again, that we need to grapple with this, what are some alternatives that can happen much more quickly instead of having yeah. to overdo the infrastructure like in the ways you've spoken about? So, so the, 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 the good news is that the price of, uh, the levelized price of um, solar and wind in, in most countries in the world is cheaper than coal. And so that makes it much more attractive. And so it's, it's a question of having the sort of courage to set the regulatory framework and set the incentives and the signals within the market to have more and more people invest in more and more renewable energy. Now, renewable energy is intermittent. What we mean by that is that when the sun shines, you have solar energy. If the sun doesn't shine at night, you don't have solar energy. So you have to invest in storage. That might be batteries, but it could also be a water body or uh, you know, pump storage uh, with dams and things like this. So what we're seeing is countries now realizing that they're going to have to shift more quickly away from coal, which is not only not cheap, but secondly, bad for the climate, but thirdly, really bad for human health, to that alternative. And making that alternative both easier as well as cheaper is going to be the key to different planning decisions being made. How close are we to being at that point on the ground to... Well, country, country by country, we're either close or past that point, right? So, uh, and one of the reasons for that is that for a lot of financial institutions, uh, private banks, but also multilateral banks and development finance institutions, which use public taxpayers' money to fund development, they are not prepared to fund coal anymore. Why? Because they're never going to make their money back. Uh, because there is an end to coal that's very clear. And secondly, it is harmful to human health and harmful to the planet. So it's very difficult to finance coal now. So in some parts of the world, uh, we still have a long pipeline of coal plants, which people say they're going to build, but it's becoming more and more difficult to finance them. And, and finally, are, were there any other highlights from today or specific examples um, from any country that you wanted to highlight? Well, New Zealand had already made a commitment that brought it into that leadership club of countries that say that they will be at zero net emissions by 2050. But today they said they would go 100% renewable by 2023, which I think is uh, really aggressive. Um, you, start, you saw Germany coming through with a number of announcements. There's a big debate in Germany about whether it's enough, but it's a big shift. We had the shipping commitment. We had a commitment of, of partners to help countries become more energy efficient. It's called the 3% Club. Uh, we've had a big cooling coalition. We talked about cooling, but countries coming forward with cooling plans. Yesterday, we announced a new climate investment platform trying to help 
the money that's been pledged reach the projects that need to be financed because there's a big mismatch at the moment. And that's just in energy. And then if you go, I think there was a green steel announcement this morning by Sweden and India and others. So little by little, you can see every sector of the economy beginning to turn the dial. The question is, listening to the Secretary General this morning and listening to Greta this morning is, is it enough and is it fast enough? That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read Mark Fischetti's article on how massive forest restoration could greatly slow global warming. And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 